time I was anxious to worship with you and to share God's word. This morning, uh, we, when Karen and I were on our way here, she was going through everything she had planned for the kids. And, and when she got done telling me, I was like, so you're telling me I've got like an hour and a half to preach. She's got all this stuff planned for them to make up for, for things and teaching, teaching the children about prayer and um, the different ways you can pray and, and have really good illustrations that she found online and stuff. So um, I was encouraged by what she's got planned. You know, I started out the year and year 2019 and in the month of January by asking the church to dedicate the month to prayer and mainly praying for the church and asking God to, to lead us and to guide us, to give us a vision and, and a fresh purpose for uh, our church community. And here we are now at the end of the month with one Sunday left in January, and I've only preached on prayer one time, and I had planned on preaching all throughout the month, but, um, you know, there's not a doubt in my mind that that was by design. It would seem that our Father wanted me to spend more time in prayer myself than in preparation to preach on prayer. And I've come a long way over the past two two weeks since we last met, and uh, I have a greater understanding of my lack of understanding about prayer, what it is, how we engage in it. It, It's amazing to me how something so basic and simple can at the same time be mysterious and complex. So I have, I've discovered a problem in my own uh, theology on prayer. And uh, let me try to explain it to you. It, it occurs due to um, a seeming conflict of, of theological truths. First, I'm a huge believer in, I'm a believer in and an advocate for the belief in the sovereignty of God. I believe that the Bible clearly teaches that God is all-powerful, that he is the supreme being in the universe. And this means that every molecule in his universe is under his complete knowledge and complete control. Every ray of sunshine that comes down from the sun, every movement of a flock of geese, he holds power over it. Every roll of the dice in Vegas obeys the laws he's put into place to govern his creation, to keep it under his sway. The conception of every newly conceived creature is the result of his sovereign power played out in what we would call reproductive biology. Just because we have fancy scientific and intellectual names to categorize God's sovereignty or God's sovereign to categorize God's sovereign control doesn't mean that it is any less amazing to think about. It doesn't explain it away. It just helps us understand it. And I also believe that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. And he is even sovereign over the hearts of every man, woman, and child. Every person is under his reign. So that's first. Second, a feature of God's sovereignty that specifically affects the idea of prayer is that God is at work 
accomplishing his will. He is working out everything according to his purpose, according to his plan, and nothing, nowhere can thwart God's purpose. That's amazing. And third, God is all wise, which means he has never needed or taken counsel from anyone, ever. He is the one who decided where the seas would stop. He hung the earth on nothing. He is the one who thought up, designed, and engineered gravity, electromagnetism, and all the other known and unknown forces of the universe. So here's my problem. Why or how would an almighty, infinite, great, all-knowing, all-wise, and perfect, holy God, who's the creator and standard of all life, hear or heed the prayers of a finite, foolish, ignorant, wicked, and vile sinner such as myself. He has no need. I can't teach him anything. There's nothing I can tell him that he doesn't already know. In fact, Jesus says as much. When Jesus was teaching on prayer, he said, don't pray like the pagans. They think they're heard by their empty words. They just heap up all these words. Don't pray like them because your father already knows what you need before you ask him. We can't fool him. He does not have an empty place in his heart that I can fulfill or satisfy. I can't make him a better God. He's already good. So why would he listen to me? He is determined to accomplish all of his plans. So how can I begin to influence him? That's my problem. It almost makes prayer seem meaningless, like fake or dull. I had never realized how my belief in God's sovereignty could inhibit my personal prayer life. I'd always thought, no, it, it, it grows it, it expands it, it, it makes it more robust. But over the past two weeks, I was faced, I was, was staring in the face this dilemma and the solution, by God's grace, to my problem is twofold. First, God is a God of love and of relationships. Now, I know that's cliche, but, but hear me out. God is not the God of love and relationships because he has felt needs that need to be met. God is the God of love and God of relationship. Because that's just who he is. He has revealed himself in scripture as a God who loves and desires to be in relationship. This is hard for us to understand. You know, we only know love and relationships through our experience, which is an experience of need. We need relationships. We need to be loved. But God... He just is love. 
He just does relate. All cliches develop because they are true. And this particular cliche makes all the difference in the world. It is the difference between God being an egotistical, cold-hearted tyrant, completely undeserving of worship or adoration, and a sovereign king who adopts his servants as sons, pouring out his unending loving kindness upon them and thereby demonstrating that he alone is fully worthy of worship, deserving our adoration and praise. Now, occasionally, I can be the type of guy who, who gets frustrated when someone tells me something I already know. You know, okay, get to the point. Tell me something I don't know. I, I love to learn. And that's especially true if I'm in a bad mood. But I thought about this because as the time draws nearer for Edelin to go to school and, and to begin learning even, I mean, she's learning so much already, but, but when she goes to school, she's going to learn so much and I can remember whenever I was younger coming home and telling my dad things and I'm just being like, you know, hey, dad, did you know that, you know, the, the moon goes around the earth? Yeah, yes, and I knew that. Well, well, did you know? And I'll just go on and on and, and trying to find something my dad didn't know so I could teach him. Well, I can just imagine uh, Edelyn coming home and she kind of gets that from me. She's so excited to learn and she wants to share everything she knows. And I can just imagine her coming home and and telling me, you know, something about like, you know, the water cycle or something. And it's like, yeah, I know that. But if I get short with her, if I just dismiss what she's saying because I already know it, that's cruel and unloving. That's not relational. And this isn't what God's about. You know, I kind of have a picture in my mind of, of an elderly grandfather with his grandchild on his lap and just listening to, to every word that comes out of their mouth. And it, it, it doesn't matter if he already knows what they're saying. It doesn't matter if he can understand perfectly. His, his grandchild is on his lap talking to him. And that's what he loves. You know, Timothy Keller, I've talked about him before, and about prayer, and one of the things that he says is the purpose of prayer, the purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to ours, but to mold our will to God's. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a good purpose. That makes, that makes sense. You know, God is not a genie in a bottle, and we can't influence him. And, um, you know, it's not about me getting God to do what I want him to do, but it's about getting into a posture and, and humbling myself and putting myself before him and opening myself up to what God's will is and asking him to reveal it to me. But then I thought, is that the only purpose of prayer? You see, the first solution to my problem kind of makes prayer... Um, that's where I'm looking for. It kind of makes prayer superficial. If, as glorious as it is that God sits there and listens to us and wants us to pour out our hearts to Him, even though He already knows what we're going to tell Him before we say it, that's amazing. But is that all prayer is? 
I don't think it is. And I don't think it is because I don't think that's the picture that the Bible paints of prayer. Just think about it. In Scripture, Elijah, Elisha prays that God would hold back the rain and the drought would come upon the earth. And it didn't rain for three years in Israel. And then he prays and it rains. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, you will receive it. Now that doesn't sound like submitting ourselves to God's will, necessarily. That sounds like us pushing forward the kingdom of God through prayer. And then Jude says, the prayers of a righteous man avail much. That doesn't fit this purpose of prayer of not bending God's will to ours, but molding our will to his. I'm not saying it's false. I think it's absolutely true. I just don't think it's the whole truth. So it seems that my problem arises from this other side of the biblical picture of prayer. That there is actually power in prayer. How can there be power in prayer if God is going to accomplish his will anyway? How can there be power in prayer if God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, and God absolutely will accomplish his will? How can it be true that my prayer can actually move the heart of God? The power of prayer is that somehow God is moved by our prayers to act on our behalf. And I'm faced with, how does that work? I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is all-knowing. I believe that he is all-wise. I believe that he absolutely will accomplish his plan of salvation for which he has destined his universe. He created his universe for a specific goal, and he will accomplish that. And I found this little book here. Everything I am going to tell you this morning came from six pages of this book. That's all the farther I could get. There were times I, I picked up this book, I would read two paragraphs and have to put it down. And I wouldn't pick it up again for another three days as I processed it. It was that challenging. It's a book by a man named E.M. Bounds. He's a Missourian. He was a chaplain for the Confederate Army. He would be on the front lines with his soldiers praying for their safety out loud so the men could hear him. This is a man who believed in the power of prayer unlike any I'd ever heard of. E.M. Bounds says this. This is, this is Ryan's paraphrase. He says, prayer puts God to work. As a man who believes in the sovereignty of God, I had a problem with that. How could me put God to work? That didn't make any sense. God's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He does what he's going to do. But no, prayer puts God to work. God has, of his own prompting, his own will, his own motivation, placed himself under the law of prayer. 
and he has obligated himself to answer the prayers of his saints. He has ordained prayer as a means whereby he will do things through saints as they pray, which he would not do otherwise. Prayer is a specific divine appointment, an ordinance of heaven, whereby God purposes to carry out his gracious will on earth and to accomplish his plan of salvation. When we say that prayer puts God to work, it is simply to say that saints have it in their power by prayer to move God to work in his own way among people, in a way which he would not work if the prayer was not made. So thus, while prayer moves God to work, at the same time, God puts prayer to work. Meaning, if it wasn't for God, prayers would accomplish nothing. So to sum up that quote, the answer to my problem is that God and his divine omniscience and his divine sovereignty has placed himself in a relationship with his people to where their prayers matter. He has willingly placed himself in a position to where when his people pray, he responds. When his people pray, he'll do things that if they didn't pray, he wouldn't otherwise do. That is a miracle. That is marvelous. What kind of God does that? What kind of God willingly puts himself almost underneath the wishes and will of his people? Who does that? A God who wants to have true, meaningful relationships with his creatures. He doesn't want it to be superficial. He doesn't want it to be meaningless. He doesn't want it to just be where you're just sitting there and your prayers don't meet, don't accomplish anything. They mean something to the heart of God. He feels them, but he doesn't actually do anything because of them. That's only half the truth. God does feel our prayers. Our prayers break his heart when we pour out our hearts to him. But our prayers also accomplish God's will in this world. That is something so mysterious that I've just begun to scratch the surface with it in my life. Two weeks ago then, I began a journey on prayer. And I began with a definition of prayer. That prayer, prayer is calling upon the name of the Lord, asking him to come through On his promises. I think that's a good definition still. This morning in our remaining few minutes. I'm going to talk about the purpose of prayer. And I'm going to try to give you some motivation. To pray. The purpose of prayer is going to come from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Mainly from verses 9 and 10. It's it's the Lord's prayer. 
You probably don't even need to turn there. You probably have it memorized. The first two verses give us the purpose of prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The purpose of prayer is the advancement of God's cause. And that's the miracle. That's that's what's so amazing is that God has ordained for prayer to be that vehicle of accomplishment. God has so created the world, so created relationships, that he uses prayer to advance his kingdom. He doesn't use troops. He doesn't use army vehicles. He doesn't use political pundits. He uses his people's prayers. to. He builds his church, his kingdom, on the backs of people's prayers. Our Father in heaven. What we can learn from that is our relationship as Christians, our relationship with God as Christians is defined primarily through Father. That can be difficult for some of us. Some of us, our fathers, weren't good examples of God. But Scripture paints a different picture. That God redeemed a people and pours out his love upon them. He's a God who's always there. He will never leave you. He is a father who provides for you. He is a father who listens. He's a father who wants your good. It's time for our relationship with God to be defined by fatherhood. And he's not a father. He's not a father of earth. He's a father who is in heaven. That gives him all, it gives him all glory, it gives him all power, it gives him all authority. Our Father is in heaven. It places him above all things. And then here is the purpose. Here is the goal. Hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. May your name be revealed. May your name represent your glory on the earth. To what extent? May your name be glorified on earth as much as it is in heaven. How much is God's name hallowed, revered in heaven? Perfectly so. It is perfectly revered in heaven. Where sin hasn't corrupted the creatures. Where sin hasn't corrupted the minds and the visions of the creatures who are worshiping God like it has on earth. The angels have a clear vision of the glory of God. May those on earth have a clear vision of the glory of God. So the purpose of prayer is the advancement of God's cause on the earth. And when God's people pray with this purpose in mind, we desire God's glory more than his provision, more than his gifts. 
Hallowed be your name is a declaration. It's a plead that God would advance his kingdom, that he would open the eyes of the blind, that he would open our eyes and our hearts to see his glory, that we would worship him truthfully, that we would worship him in spirit and in truth. In this attitude of hallowed be your name, it places ourselves in a position to bring him glory. So the purpose of prayer is the advancement of God's cause. It's desiring God's glory more than his gifts. And it places us in a position to serve his glory, his kingdom on the earth. To be the vessels by which God does advance his kingdom. Isn't that incredible? Prayer is the vehicle by which God advances his cause. And then God turns around and empowers his people to accomplish the very prayers they prayed. That's unbelievable. Prayer is powerful because we're praying to a powerful God who has orchestrated and created his kingdom to be such that as we pray, he changes our hearts to accomplish the prayers we're praying. When we're praying For the glory of God. Who are praying for the advancement of his kingdom. So you may think. Ryan. We're praying for. Surgeries. How do we accomplish. The end result of those prayers. As we're praying. God is answering those prayers. And filling us up. To pray more. So God's people initiate through prayer to advance the kingdom of God, to see people saved, to see communities transformed, and then he empowers them to accomplish that. So very quickly, I'm going to give you a few motivations to pray. Oftentimes, I don't feel motivated to pray. And so I have two, two passages of Scripture. Well, I think I'll probably just, yeah, we'll, hopefully we'll get to both of them. Two passages of Scripture to find motivation to pray. Psalm 145. Psalm 145, I was just going to talk about a couple verses. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Who is this God we're praying to? He is a God who is slow to anger. He's slow to get mad. He has steadfast love. He's gracious and merciful, abounding in patience. He is a Lord who is good. When we get a clear vision of who God is, as changed, regenerate people of God, our hearts are going to want to cling to him. In verse 3 of Psalm 145, it says this. 
Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I think the psalmist is trying to get across that the Lord is great. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. The secret, the secret to the Christian life, the secret to success in the Christian life is prayer. It's not a very big secret, is it? It's just one we often forget. The weakest child of God becomes the strongest in prayer and through prayer. The lowliest in the kingdom of God becomes the mightiest in prayer. Prayer is a, is a level playing field for all of God's people. All of God's children have access to him in prayer. And we're praying to an almighty God. We're praying to a God who is full of grace and mercy. Who is great. Who his greatness is unsearchable. We all are praying to him. As Christians. So the successful Christian. Is a Christian who knows how to pray. It doesn't matter if you can lift a finger for the Lord out in the community. If you can pray, you can accomplish much. Prayer is a level playing field for all of God's children. But then it also says in verse 18 that the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. God promises to be near to those who call on him in truth. In sincerity, not just gimmicks and tricks. God promises to be near to those who call on Him. Sometimes, as we're praying, it just feels like we're throwing rocks up to the sky and watching them fall down. But no prayer goes unheard, no prayer goes unheeded. Or unwelcomed by our Father. Another quote from Brother Bounds. We all say that we believe prayer is effective. That it accomplishes much. But still, there's this great feeling that when a man is praying, he's doing nothing. And this feeling makes us give undue importance to work. Sometimes even to the hurrying over or passing by or even to the neglect of prayer. Prayer is no fitful or short-lived thing. It is no voice crying unheard and unheeded in the silence. Prayer is a voice that goes into God's ear and it lives as long as God's ear is open to holy pleas. And as long as God's heart is alive to holy things. God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. They don't die. The lips that utter the prayer may be closed in death. The heart that felt them may cease to beat. But the prayers live before God. God's heart is set on the prayers of his people. And prayers outlives the lives, and prayers outlive the lives 
of those who prayed them. They outlive the generation that prayed them. They outlive an age. They outlive a world. God hears our prayers. He's near to those who call upon him. And no prayer goes unheard, unheeded, or unwelcomed by the Father. Finally, let me say a word about God's willingness to answer prayers. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 9, starting in verse 9, Jesus asks this. He says, which one of you, if your son asks you for a loaf of bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks you a fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you see the logic there? If we who are sinful, if we who are selfish and unrighteous know how to give good things to our children when they ask for them, Mommy, I'm hungry. Okay, let me get you something to eat. Mommy, the shoe hurts. Well, that's because it's too small. We've got to get you some new shoes. If we know how to give good things to our children and we're sinful human beings, unrighteous, how much more does our God who's in heaven full of righteousness, know how to give good things to those who ask him. You know, Jesus taught on prayer often. And after one parable, he said this. Again, Ryan's paraphrase. When I come back, will there be anybody on earth who believes in the power of prayer? It seems to me that God is more willing to answer our prayers than we're willing to offer them up. God seems to be more willing to answer our prayers than we're willing to pray. Church, prayer is powerful. Prayer changes lives. Prayer changes communities. And prayer will change our church. So again, I ask you, as I asked you at the beginning of the month, let's continue to pray for our church that God would use us to be ministers of the gospel in this community. The community of Glasgow so desperately needs gospel truth gospel ministry, people who will love them as Jesus loved them. Let's pray that God makes us those people, that the city of Glasgow can see a biblical community of Christ who loves each other, who loves their Lord, and who loves others. Let's pray. Dear Father, I come to you, the giver of life, to you, the righteous Father in heaven, Father, I pray that you would use us to accomplish your will in this community, that your glory would shine forth, that 
people's eyes would be open to see you as worthy of worship. They would be in awe and amazed at the love of God and what he's done for them. Father, I pray that you would do these things to bring yourself glory. Amen. I don't know how the Lord wants you to respond this morning. It could be that you just need to continue to sit there and pray. It could be you need to stand and sing. It could be you need to come down in the front and talk to me. You respond to the Lord however he's calling you.